Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So I just finished a book that I thought was delightful to read. It's The Hidden Life of Trees. And um, it's this guy who's managed a forest, a forest for a really long time and has just learned a ton about trees, how they communicate, how they like help each other. It's amazing. It's amazing. One of the details in this book that I found particularly relevant for today is he noticed how people talk about old growth forests as if they were static things. Like just because there are trees that are thousands and thousands of years old, people talk about it and treat it as if it'll always be the same. And he said, um, the funny thing is, is that forests are actually incredibly dynamic places. There are tons of different things happening like all the time in forests. It's just that trees move at a pace that is slower than human beings. And so from our perspective, it seems like things are standing still. But from a tree's perspective, forests are as alive and uh, uh, moving around as a, as a shopping mall is for humans. Like it's, it's active. And it makes me think about how there are so many things in our lives that we think of as static, meaning stays the same, but are actually quite dynamic, meaning it can change and move a lot. Um, there's that phrase like, this person is my rock. Uh, you know, talking about like a romantic partner, this person is my rock. And it's like, talk to a geologist. Rocks change all the time, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes we think of different uh, members of our family as kind of like one static thing, but then it causes a lot of suffering when that person changes or enters a different stage of life or even passes away. It's like, oh, the pain of that is because we thought something would stay the same, but actually it doesn't stay the same. And actually one of the um, myths uh, that prevent social justice is that societies are basically the same. When we look, go out and look at the world, it's like, well, the way the things are are pretty much how things have to be. (laughs) It's like, actually, society is quite malleable. And the ways that uh, that people buy into society can greatly change the makeup of society. And, And people actually have like way more power to affect change in society than I think we allow ourselves to believe. Because when things can be static, we can count on them and we don't have to think about them. But when things are dynamic, we kind of have to like focus on it, right? And and this is uh, the foundational observation for many different spiritual traditions. In uh, the Jewish tradition, we see Ecclesiastes talking about for everything there is a season. Um, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about this concept of impermanence, like uh, don't grasp onto anything is, in a, is a central image in Buddhism, don't grasp onto anything because uh, it's going to go away. I'm talking mostly about Zen Buddhism. And I think that John 1 has a really, John 1 is the scripture that we just heard, has a really interesting uh, added voice to this conversation about impermanence. Because it, it, it actually contrasts quite significantly from the Buddhist concept of 
impermanent, the Zen Buddhist concept of impermanence, because John is saying that God is both finite, meaning can change, and infinite, meaning in somehow in some ways doesn't change. And God was there in the beginning, and God lived a mortal life, which meant it changed. And in this way, God is permanent, but has chosen impermanence to be among us. Um, if this feels a little bit like a brain explosion, <laughs> welcome to the Gospel of John! <laughs> like Jesus has a teaching that's like, I and the Father are one. Like, what does that even, what does that even mean? It's, it's as if the, the author of John is trying to kind of tease us into a completely new understanding of God. Because one of the foundational uh, beliefs of Christianity is that God, there, there's no other entity like God. And so, uh, so John is trying to say like, yeah, it's God is kind of like this, but it's also like the opposite of that. And both of those exist in God at the same time. Figure it out, right? Like, like uh, in the Gospel of John, God is kind of like those memes that we see of like black don't crack, where it looks at like an actress who's like four thousand years old and has like a six pack, like uh, Bianca Lawson, who's not four thousand years old. Uh, Beyonce's stepsister, of course, is an actress who has portrayed teenagers for like 30 years. <laughs> and when you look at these pictures, it's like, how can it be? How can it be? And I think that that's kind of what the Gospel of John is getting at. It's like, yeah, how can it be? <laughs> right? Um, that's why we need so many metaphors for God, because God has no peer. There's no one-to-one -one correlation. It's like that Onion article title that said, court rules Meryl Streep unable to be tried by jury as she has no peers, right? And it, and it is that peerlessness of God that, that I think John is honing in on. And that is, in fact, incredibly disruptive to any previous understanding of God. And this understanding of God that's totally unlike anything is like, like disruptive of our imagination. And I believe that what John as well as Matthew and Luke are trying to get at is that God is like infinite, but sometimes it is difficult to love an infinite nebulous thing. Like <laughs> if I were to uh, uh, ask you to like, just fall in love with dust <laughs> you know it, it it's like uh okay and especially when we think of this from a liberation theology perspective which um i'm revisiting a black theology of liberation by james cone and it, which is just like so good and one of uh cones's observations is like white american theology over spiritualizes the concept of god like white, white American theology is like, God is that thing way over there. And therefore, when we worship God, it doesn't have any like actual meaningful societal consequences for how we, we function together. Like 
I think that it's important in liberation theology that Jesus took on a body, that Jesus became material, because then, therefore, there are material consequences to believing in Jesus. To put it more plainly, like, if you go to a, a person who's experiencing hunger, uh, that hunger is a material need. And if we say, like, you have to worship God, and that worship of God will have no change on anything in your life, <laughs> then it's kind of more like this, like, cloudy God is meant to be, a, like, a sedative or like a... Like a uh, anesthesia for pain, but it's not actually changing anything. And um, and when God becomes material, it means that God wants to like give hungry people food. God wants to create material circumstances changes for people who are being oppressed. And like uh, Dr. Cohn points out, the whole point of Christian theology is to describe how God, God is going about liberating the poor. Of course, now that Jesus's body isn't physically on the scene anymore, like we can't go visit Jesus's body, uh, we run into all sorts of problems because anytime that you're trying to portray God, the empire kind of sneaks in to that portrayal to reinforce the powers of domination and oppression. This is why, unless we're intentional about it, our portrayals of God always portray the most privileged parts of society. This is how we came across uh, a light-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus, or better yet, a super shredded, ripped Jesus who was dying on the cross, the point of which is demonstrating that Jesus is solidarity with the the suffering is like evident in the cross and then it, like there's Jesus just looking at like he's bulk and not sulking so <laughs> like this is what happens when we don't have like a, a a critical lens or like a power analysis or solidarity with the poor and we start portraying God uh, because like it our, our tendency is to revere privilege to revere the most privileged parts of society because evolutionarily it's like wow i want to be next to the people who are in charge i want to be next to the powerful i want to be next to the people who can make my life comfortable and that's a certain type of veneration and so naturally when we think of god we kind of like put those venerated uh, characteristics of privilege onto god and jesus was like okay that totally works except i Jesus' teaching is like, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last in the kingdom of God. And so our portrayals of God can't just reflect the, the most venerated portrayals of privilege that already exist in society. We need to look at God through the lens of the people who are last in line, because that's how we will understand this like infinite disruptive God. And this is why I love the photo series. Oh my gosh, it's so good. The Instagram Advent photo series. Have you all seen that? Um, and, and it's photos. And then there's also like written devotionals, which are gorgeous. It's all on our Instagram. Check it out. I, you don't need an Instagram account to be able to see it. It's uh, Instagram.com slash Gardner City. 
Oh boy. Okay, so here's the thing. We invited queer people of color to portray different characters of the nativity and then take a picture. And I don't know, it, start, it started this week. I don't know if you saw the pictures of how it already started, of those two pictures of the Magi, the wise men. <gasps> okay, this is amazing. And for me, it really begs the question of like, how would our understanding of the nativity change if we knew that there was a queer person present at the birth of Jesus Christ? How would it change our understanding if if the wise men didn't look like the the older like medieval paintings of what we understand the wise men to look like, but looked like some of the people in our community? Like, what would? How does that? How does that invite us into a different way of relating to God's love in this? Of course, there are certain like anachronisms uh, that come along with that question, and I don't think it's. Uh, quite fair for me to put a, a Western modern understanding of gender and sexuality onto an ancient Near Eastern culture. But it does beg the question of, like, if the people in the nativity took a time machine to our, like, modern era, would some of them identify as queer? And knowing what we know now, statistically, it sure seems like at least one of them would. So how does that impact our understanding of the nativity. What is what is being invited from our meditation on this like queerness of the of the nativity? And I predict that some people will look at this photo series and see it as disruptive, uh, uh, in a in an unhelpful way. Well, they'll say things like, oh, "Can't we just have Christmas? Can't Christmas be nice? I just want Christmas to be, you know, about." Uh, uh, nice old-timey movies and songs and like why do we have to make this a whole big thing about queerness and if that is the response I think that the photo series is doing exactly what it is intended to do because through that line of thought that reaction we are beginning to unearth some of the idolatry present within our own belief system uh, uh, the idolatry of heterosexuality, namely, like if, if you believe that queer people being part of something makes something not nice, what does that mean about your beliefs about us? And, and is that really the will of God? Is that the imagination of the God who created all of us, who created the universe? Did God say, I know that I created queer people, but I just don't want them to be present at the nativity. Like, imagine. Uh, so so I, I think that th there's a certain unearthing that that invites. And, and I also know that there are people who will be like, gosh, I didn't even mean to be homophobic. But now I realize that if I say that gay people de depicting certain parts of the nativity... Uh, cheapens the nativity, then that is indeed homophobic. And like, that is the kind of like unearthing that I think that Jesus came to facilitate. I think when we say that Jesus is saving us, like a lot of times it's like Jesus is helping us connect the dots of how the very empire that we are opposing is embedded within us. And, and through disruptions, we are able to see like, wait a second, I actually 
am carrying a belief that doesn't align with my understanding of the love of God. And through that, and it's not just, and I'm kind of a heady person, so like I often describe it as a heady thing, but really this is a full body knowing. This is a full body experience because I think that um, I remember like even when uh, I, as a gay person, saw the first um, the first time that I saw gay people kissing. Can you remember the first time that you saw gay people kissing? It was uh, that Christina Aguilera music video. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I like that. And I'm a gay person. <laughs> I definitely like that, right? But th- there was something about this image of like, oh, I don't know, that I realized that even I, as a gay person, had internalized homophobia internalized anti-gayness that made me like almost repulsed by certain images and like that like needed some working on and like Jesus saved me from the repulsion against things that are disruptive um so like I think that that's I'm, I'm really like huge huge props to the comms team to all the folks who are participating in this and especially to uh to me who's organizing the the photo side of this I'm just a, such a big fan of this series. And I should say, the essays that are coming through the Advent devotional that Heidi's organizing are also killer. I do want to be clear, though, that the goal of this is to expand imagination. It's not just to be a provocateur. Like, we're not just kind of doing this, like, disintegrated Enneagram 4 thing where it's like, you know, like the starving nihilist contemporary artist who's like, what if the manger were a banana duct taped to the wall? It's like, no, (laughs) we're trying to embody actually like, like a healthier version of an Enneagram four, which is like, I'm using art uh, that drives uh, values of love in the world and liberation in the world. That line from a four to a one is like, I'm, I'm trying to use my expressiveness, not just to kind of like feel things, but to, to further my society in the world. And I think that uh, that's the difference of what we're talking about is like the nativity isn't just like, we're going to do something radical for the sake of being radical. But it's like, no, no, no. We're a, we're a church community that has a lot of queer people of color and we're run mostly by queer people of color. And, and yet queer people of color are almost never spoken into the story that is one of the most important theological stories in the Bible. <laughs> and, and there's, there's certain theological benefits. There's a, 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 the soul benefits from being able to, to engage with art, uh, religious art in this way. Does that difference make sense? You know what I mean? And by the way, if you don't know what the Enneagram is and you're worshiping at New City, you can talk to me. We can have a a typing session. It'll be fabulous. Just reach out to us through the website. But what I'm trying to say is um, the disruption isn't an ends in itself. Disruption, the point of disruption is the disruption is the means to a birthing of a new type of society. And that's what we're trying to render here is this imagination where the love of God made known in the world has always included every type of marginalized person because the point of Christian theology is to describe how God is saving the oppressed. And in this way, 
I suppose what New City is doing is quite traditional. We got into this really interesting conversation in Sacred Witnessing last week. Sacred Witnessing is the Zoom call after worship. We'd love to see you there. We got into this really interesting conversation about tradition. And, uh, you know, I'm an ordained United Methodist pastor. And in the tradition of United Methodism, there is this belief that God is a feelable God. God, you can sense God. The experience of God is knowable in your body. It's not just a concept. It's like something that you can sense. And, and worship is one of the important ways that we do that. That God is feel, Methodists believe that God is feelable and that brings us to community so that we can go and transform the world. It's like we experience God in community to go transfer the world. That's like the whole tradition of Methodism. This is like hundreds of years old, right? And like when I look at the this like queer nativity, I experience God in a different way. Like I never thought that someone who um, had any of my experiences or identities or markers would be present in the story of the nativity because I don't expect anything that I see is going to represent me unless it's like explicitly about that thing, right? Like a documentary about queer Asian people, right? But otherwise I just assume that I'll never see myself reflected in anything that I look at. So the fact that this like queer nativity of color is portraying people in 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 these sacred roles is not just um, uh, uh, nice. It's like a revelation for me. Like I'm experiencing God differently, and I know that for sure queer people are experiencing God differently through this series. And I believe that there are folks who are cisgender and straight who are like that is helpful actually. <laughs> and and like that we're feeling God in community in a way that is driving us to go change the world. Do you see how this is like so aligned with Methodism, so aligned with the tenor of, of the tradition that we're coming from? It is the most Methodist traditional thing that we can do. And that's because tradition isn't about domination and control tradition is about wisdom like i think that there's a there's a misunderstanding that you know tradition means if our the people who came before us did it a certain way then we have to do it this way and we have to use this to like limit and control and like <laughs> like hegemony but tradition isn't about hegemony tradition is about intergenerational wisdom Tradition is like, hey, we learned some things that are worth passing down and we're passing this on so that humanity can grow in the love of God a little bit more. And so tradition isn't ever supposed to be about us limiting our relationship of God in community or the transformation of the world. Tradition is always supposed to be about us stepping out of our like current understanding of things to see how our ancestors understood it so that we can go about building the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what I mean? Like tradition isn't always a, isn't supposed to be about empire. Tradition is supposed to be about kingdom. I'm a very future oriented person, but I've come to learn that tradition is not a whip. It's a root system. And there's so much more that we can do when we 
are able to glean the wisdom of people who have gone before us, but it can never be used to dominate or control. And Christians have a tradition of disruption. <laughs> like we believe in Jesus who was like, okay, I know that you have all of these like amazing laws passed down. All of those are fabulous. And like God is real. And if we encounter a real life God, if we create a relationship with God, that relationship will grow and be dynamic like an old growth forest. Like we will come alive in a way that is not static. In order for us to practice our faith, we are continually falling more and more in love with God. And that requires disruption. Jesus came to disrupt a whole lot so that we could fall deeper in love with God. My prayer for you in this worship service is that you might be disrupted of all the right things so that you can fall a little bit more in love with God. It all starts with the nativity. Let us go together. Amen.